0: Good morning, uh, this is Healthy Options. I'm Andre Bella. I'm your host for this morning. Healthy Options is a show about integrative health therapies. And today, the title of our show is Vaccines Get the Full Story. Um, this morning, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Suzanne Humphreys, who is an MD and has done lots of research on vaccines. And we're also going to be interviewing Ginger Taylor who is a family therapist and the mother of a child with autism. Um, this is a subject we have covered several times on healthy options before. Back a few years ago, we interviewed David Kirby on his book, Evidence of Harm, about connections between vac- vaccines and autism. We've also done shows on autism and other shows on vaccines. So this is a subject that is in the news at the moment. And um, we're uh, we- welcome to both of you. We feel very fortunate to have both of you on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Um Uh, Dr. Humphreys, uh, in 2009, after a convergence of vaccine-related events, dedicated herself to a six-month study on vaccines, which would change her life forever. Dr. Humphreys has now rededicated her life as a doctor to educating both physicians and the public at large on the truths that surrounds the hype she advises doctors to look outside of pharmaceutical-funded medical journals and pursue the full picture of studies, real-life outcomes, and toxicities from vaccines. Dr. Humphreys is an MD. She's an internist and a board-certified nephrologist. Um, Suzanne, welcome. Welcome this morning.
1: Thank you, Andre. Thank you for having us on this morning.
0: Yes. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. And also Ginger. Ginger Taylor is a John Hopkins-educated family therapist. She's the mother of an 8-year-old little boy who regressed into autism following his 18-month vaccines. She's also the founder of Greater Brunswick Special Families, a support group for special needs families in her area. Uh, she also blogs at adventuresinautism.com. And Ginger is the co-author and contributing editor of a new book coming out next week entitled Vaccine Epidemic: How corporate greed, biased science, and coercive government threatens our human rights, our health, and our children. It is a highly in-depth and serious discussion of the problems with our vaccine program which makes the case for informed consent and parental choice in vaccination and you can learn more about her book on vaccineepidemic.com. Um this book has earned great reviews from a former MD, congressman and a former head of the NIH. Welcome Ginger and Thanks welcome for me. Welcome to both of you. Um this show is, I want to remind the listeners, is not a calling show. Uh, this actually is a recorded show. So, unfortunately, we can't field your questions on this show today, but perhaps we can do that in another show in the future. Um, we especially wanted to air this show today because there is an important press release coming out um, today. And uh, Dr. Humphreys, can you talk a little bit about that press release?
1: Yes. This is a document that was drafted by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny and myself uh, over the past year, and uh, it is published by Natural News, which can be found at naturalnews.com, by Mike Adams. And the document is called Vaccines, Get the Full Story, Protect Your Child and Yourself. Uh, What this document is is basically an outline of why people should be concerned about all vaccines, where they can go for, for help, for more resources, to read more, and to basically educate themselves and make their own determination of what's right for them and their child. We believe, the International Medical Council on Vaccination believes, that refusing vaccination is a personal right that should be legislatively guaranteed. The International Medical Council on Vaccination was formed in July of 2009, and basically it's an it's an association of medical doctors registered nurses and other qualified medical professionals and our purpose is to counter the messages that are asserted by pharmaceutical companies by government and medical agencies the vaccines are safe effective and harmless basically we have done our own research we have spent thousands of hours pouring through conventional literature as well as alternative literature speaking to parents many of us have our own experiences as physicians and parents watching people deteriorate in front of our eyes shortly after vaccines. Uh, and our conclusions have been reached individually by each member of the council. And as medical professionals, and cal- our council members have observed firsthand the health of vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. We find the unvaccinated group to be robust, to be healthy, and to be drug-free compared to the former group. We've reviewed published studies in support of vaccines and have found them to be wanting both substance and science. And we've brought into the open hundreds of peer-reviewed published medical articles that document the damage and the diseases that are caused by vaccines. So we encourage intelligent debate about vaccination. We actually have had debates on our, our webinars at the International Medical Council on Vaccination, and we would like to have more of them. We are willing to debate any point in this document And we expect individuals to take responsibility for their health and for the health of their children by investigating the problems due to vaccination prior to subjecting their children or themselves to this medical procedure. And our goal is to give them the information that they need to take themselves to the place to do their own investigation. So this document is really an outline for them to start to get the full story.
0: Now, would you also mention who uh, has signed this document?
1: Yes, we have approximately 80 medical doctors. We also have registered nurses. Some of the uh, medical doctors include myself, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who has written a book called Saying No to Vaccines, which refutes the 25 most common arguments used by the vaccine sympathizers. Um, We have uh, Christine Northrup, a medical doctor uh, who started the True North Clinic down in Portland and has done a lot of her own independent research on breast health. Oh, let's see, we have um, Vera Scheibner who has written a book on um, orthodox literature refuting uh, the, the safety of vaccines. Um, it, on the, actually, if you just go to the website, you can see the 80 doctors that are there. You can see uh, the other nurses, and we have actually a, a, a list that's a, accumulating now of people who are going to be joining. And if anybody listening to this show would like to get added to our list, Please go to vaccination, vaccinationcouncil.org/practitioners, and you can get yourself placed on our online list uh, to to uh, be added, have your name
0: added. So would it be fair to say that there's roughly a hundred signatures on this document, yes. and these are all professional medical people?
1: That's right. They're they're medical, mostly they're medical doctors, MDs. We have DOs, osteopaths. We have some chiropractors, DCs. Uh, We have some uh, people overseas that are medical doctors that use different um, abbreviations like MBBCH and MB uh, in the UK, and Europe are are considered doctors of medicine. Our our organization is international. This this document has been translated into nine different languages, and uh, our doctors come from all around the world.
0: Yeah, I want to point out to our listening audience how important this document is because uh, of the number of medical people who have actually come out and supported and signed this statement. And we will talk a little later on the show about the courage it takes to do this. And, and I know, Suzanne, we, we've talked quite a bit about the number of medical professionals who have approached you and supported your work, but they don't feel um, that they're able to say that in public. And here we have 100 people that are finally stepping to the plate and saying, I'm, I'm I'm coming up out in public and saying this. I think this is major news.
1: Yes, it is. And, you know, in medical school, doctors actually, in the past, were not taught anything about the contents of a vaccine. They were not taught about potential side effects of vaccines. We were basically just handed the protocol, and we trusted the CDC's recommendations. And I actually did myself trust the CDC's recommendations and believed what I was taught Well, nowadays, students are being taught information in medical school, but mostly what they're being taught is how to talk to people like me, not actually what is actually in vaccines and what the potential problems are with how how they're grown on on animal cells. So while many of us walk around having having our doubts and seeing things happen in front of our eyes and wondering could it be related, most of us don't go and do the research to actually find out the answers. And... It's it's um, it's a very heated and taboo debate uh, topic right now to 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 cast any doubt upon the safety and effectiveness of vaccines because it's seen as threatening the public health. So while many doctors um, do have their doubts, they're not willing to walk into the light and say, you know, we need more information before we can start before we can be vaccinating hours old infants for hepatitis B. We need more information before we can start vaccinating elderly people with pneumonia vaccines and flu vaccines on their first day of admission while they're having a heart attack, while they're having pneumonia, while they're having an acute episode of kidney failure. We need more information. For those of us that have come out and said that, we really do take a lot of heat. I myself have taken a lot of heat. We stand the risk of losing our jobs, of losing our licenses, losing our reputations despite what our histories have been, how clean our records have been. And so, yes, I've had many doctors and nurses come up to me, whisper in my ears, telling me that they appreciate what I'm doing and thanking me, but they are unwilling to be placed on a list, as such that I mentioned earlier, because of the threat to their livelihood.
0: Yes, and this is real, and I um, know uh, part of that story is covered by the history of Dr. Wakefield in in the U.K. Um, And I think that it's a whole different thing now that we have Internet access, we have access to so much information that we didn't have. And so it is the responsibility of everyone. And we're not just talking about uh, children. We're talking about all of us also as adults who constantly are reading advertisements and, and reading information saying that we should get various vaccinations. So, so this is a show for everybody. This isn't just about parents and kids. We're, we're talking about vaccines across the board. Um, Suzanne, would you uh, just tell us a little bit about, let's start with some of the history of the smallpox and po- uh, polio vaccines, because I think that's kind of where the story begins for vaccination. So let's do a little background information on that.
1: Yes, that's a that's a really great place to go. As I found personally, when I started to doubt the, the safety of uh, vaccines at my own hospital, when I saw before my very eyes people developing kidney failure, which was temporarily related to last year's H1N1 and seasonal flu vaccines given together. And when I mentioned this to different physicians, the first thing out of, out of all of their mouths is consistent. And what they say is, well, smallpox was eradicated by vaccines and polio was eradicated by vaccines. So I decided to go and look into that myself. And what I found was actually startling. And and when you look at what happened with smallpox and polio, and when you, when you really understand that, and if I can even convey a little bit of, of, of how this myth was propagated, it will, it will cast light on the transparency of what's going on now with the influenza vaccines, with the uh, HPV, the, the cervical cancer vaccines, and, in fact, on the entire vac- vaccine program. So smallpox was a disease... that's that's been around for for ages, thousands of years. And in England in the 1800s, the late 1800s, it was rumor amongst dairy maids that if one developed cowpox, which is a virus that's related to smallpox, but it's very different from smallpox, it has a different size, it has a different genetic sequence, it has a different pathologic presentation, but because it's pox, the, the rumor amongst the dairy maids was that if they developed cowpox, that they became immune to smallpox. Smallpox vaccines were, t- were tried over the ages. Even in China, there were people that were sniffing um, the uh, dust from smallpox. But the, the smallpox vaccines, even when they were developed, were fatal. They were very dangerous. So they decided that trying this cowpox, so, so even today in the smallpox vaccine, does not contain smallpox. It contains cowpox. It's a different virus. It's it's orthopox vaccinia as opposed to orthopox variola, which is what we, which is what the smallpox is. And as we know from the flu vaccine, specificity is important, right? Because every year they go out and they find the three most important strains that we have to get vaccinated for every year in order to protect us because we need specificity. But when it comes to smallpox, that's, that's, a completely different story. So it's mythology. And with mythology, if you hear the story enough times, people will start to believe it. And that's, in fact, what happened with smallpox. So despite the fact that physicians coming forward in the days, early days of the smallpox vaccination and saying, hey, wait a minute, I have hundreds of people here who actually contracted smallpox from their cows, but later developed smallpox nonetheless, well, the powers that be at the time just dismissed these claims out of hand just like they do today. So we had this, this history of, of making a, a very contaminated vaccine that could have contained animal hair, syphilis, leprosy, tuberculosis, tetanus. Um, what else could have been in there? Goat. It could have had a combination of goat pox, swine pox, monkey pox, horse pox, or human smallpox in these vaccines back in the day. Uh, there were very crude methods that were used to, to create them, and despite that, and despite the fact that when we look at vital statistics in different parts of the world during the smallpox vaccination campaigns, that vaccinated communities, 100% vaccinated communities had the highest rates of smallpox, and they had the highest rates of death from smallpox. When, when uh, cities decided after they Realize this. Some of the, the leaders back in the time said, "Hey, wait a minute. We're 95% vaccinated here. We're having worse smallpox outbreaks than our neighboring cities. Let's try something different. Let's clean the place up and see what happens." So there was this. Just for an example, there was a city in, in, called Leicester, or as the British say, Leicester, in uh, the UK that had a very high vaccination rate, 95% vaccination rate. They still had one of the highest smallpox rates and deaths. So their leader at the time decided to clean up the city, to clean up the markets, to clean up the streets, the dairies, the water, and to stop vaccinating. And what happened was that their smallpox rate plummeted 80% in the first year. And that's exactly what we see. As smallpox vaccine declines, smallpox declines. As smallpox vaccine increased, like we saw in the Philippines, was 100% vaccinated, they had one of the most startling epidemics of smallpox at the time when they were 100% vaccinated. We've had um, scientists and, and playwrights and authors account their, their horrific histories with smallpox over the ages. So only 10 to 20% of the, of the world's population was ever even vaccinated for smallpox. So if you just know that, you know that there's something amiss with the, with the myth that's, that smallpox was eradicated by vaccines. What really happened was that, like most infectious diseases, the decline in them happened long before the uh, vaccines were ever invented. With some diseases like the Black Plague and Scarlet Fever, there was never a vaccine invented, and those things went down on their own. Mm -hmm. So that's what we see, in fact, with all of these supposedly uh, vaccine-preventable diseases, is they were down by 90% before the vaccines ever even came along. So as usual, back in England, in the U.K. back in the day, there was a lot of money to be made off of these vaccines. They were mandated throughout populations, um, and a lot of people got rich from these vaccines. Mm -hmm. So that's the smallpox history, a little bit of the smallpox history.
0: Uh, I, I just want to remind listeners that might just be tuning in, this is Healthy Options. And this morning, the name of our show is Vaccines get the full story and we're talking this morning with uh, Dr. Suzanne Humphreys and also with Ginger Taylor. And um, so I think that gives us a great a great history of smallpox. What what about polio? That's another one everybody points to.
1: That's right. Well well what I found out about polio in my research was was even more startling than that. So the polio, polio has apparently been around when we look at hieroglyphics and we look at pictures that were drawn in the past, that para- paralysis, that's what we should really call it, because the polio virus doesn't necessarily cause paralysis. In fact, in 95% of people, even if you go on right now into the Internet and go to the CDC's website, they'll tell you that in 95% of cases it is either asymptomatic or <clears throat> a mild, cold-like, flu-like illness involving the GI tract. Um, the fact is is that 80% of people back in the day when we were seeing all these paralytic episodes in the 1940s and looking at these iron lungs and so on and so forth, 80% of the population was actually immune to polio back then. So there's more to the story than than what we were ever told. And when we go and do the research about polio, what we find is that, like most infectious diseases, even if we go over into, into Asia and we look at the bird flu that happened, with most of these infectious diseases, we need synergy, And what we need usually is an environmental toxin, heavy metals, things like that. And then when we add that to this otherwise benign virus, what we can end up with are paralytic cases. And in fact, back in the days when we were seeing all this debilitating uh, paralysis, what was happening is that DDT was being sprayed like baby powder on people. It was being sprayed on crops. It was being sprayed on immigrants. It was being sprayed on children with head lice. I mean, it was everywhere. So this was a summer virus people contracted in the summer. That's not the usual case with viruses. And in my opinion, that's why. It's because in the summer is when they were spraying most of the DDT. Oh,
0: uh, right. It is, always, it is always associated with a summer thing, that's with right. going swimming. And, and that would be when they would be spraying the DDT.
1: Absolutely. And there was, it was also found in metal workers long before that. Medical, metal, metal workers were exposed to lead, which is another heavy metal that can cause a lot of neurological toxicity. So so we have synergy going on back then, but what they did is they blamed this supposed polio virus at the time, and they developed a vaccine for it. And the vaccine that was developed, there were two vaccines that were developed by two different people, Jonas Salk, which probably most people have heard of, and Albert Sabin. So the Salk vaccine was first, and that was an inactivated vaccine. Basically, they used formaldehyde to, to kill the um, – well, they tried to kill the virus, but in fact they were unable to kill the viruses, and in one – uh, case of the trial in, in the early days of using this vaccine, hundreds of children were paralyzed by the vaccine, and in fact, they were paralyzed in the arm that they were injected in. Eleven of them died. Many of them remained permanently paralyzed, and in fact, people who were exposed to them, their family members, also developed polio, and many of them developed paralysis. So these vaccines throughout history have actually spread polio because if it's an in- inactivated vaccine, sometimes they're unable to completely inactivate like they were in that particular case because there were clumps in the vaccine that harbored live virus. Then when we look at the live polio vaccine, which was later developed by Albert Sabin, that vaccine is still to this day used in other countries and spreading polio around the world. So we have vaccines that are spreading disease, which happens with Chickenpox vaccines, and any kind of live vaccine. So that's one of the problems we have with any kind of a live vaccine is that you actually continue to spread the disease. The other problem we have with the polio vaccine is that it's made in, on monkey kidney cells. Now, common sense would tell you that monkeys may not be the best animal to use for any kind of vaccine. And In fact, it's also used for the smallpox vaccine. There are several other vaccines that monkey kidney cells are still in. The problem with using primates is that because they're so genetically related to us that they can harbor a virus that's benign in them but that actually causes terrible disease in human beings. These primates harbor so many viruses that they actually had to start numbering them. When they got up to number 40, they found one that was quite damaging. It's called SV40, simian virus 40, which is known to cause cancer. This is not fringe, crazy, you know, hippie ideation here. This is actually a conventionally documented problem in the medical literature that the polio vaccines up through the late 1990s and possibly even today still could contain that sv 40 virus. So, okay, so now we have, the, we have Synergy we reviewed. We've had potential contaminants in vaccines of, of what we call stealth viruses, which are very difficult to eliminate and very difficult to detect even in today's day and age using polymerase chain reaction. Very difficult to detect. Then, then, then this is the real thing. This is the real kicker and why it looked like polio disappeared. What they did is they started a whole new set of rules after they started mass vaccinating with polio. What actually happened is that paralytic polio actually increased after the vaccinations by 50% in 1957 to 1958. But because of the way they changed the diagnostic criteria, it appeared as though polio went down. Here's what they did. After 1956... They decided that there, to diagnose polio, a patient had to have paralytic symptoms for 60 days or more. Before 1956, if you had paralytic symptoms for 24 hours, you were considered to have polio. Okay? So you can see right there how the statistics could be skewed from that.
0: Right, and, and you could actually be having sort of a, a mild flu reaction, uh, and it would all be over. That's and right. And they, so they, uh, they stopped counting those to skew the st- statistics. That's right. Mm-hmm. the
1: new ruling of using 60 days or more meant that vastly fewer mm-hmm. cases of polio were, would be reported and so that's that's exactly what happened because because of that so many people would would already be resolved by the time they would they so they wouldn't be so if they if their cases resolved they would not be recorded as polio even if it was polio the second thing they did is polio cases diagnosed within 30 days of vaccines were recorded in the logbooks but they rec- they were recorded as pre-existing okay so what that meant was that fewer cases of vaccine failure would be reported, but the cases that developed polio from the vaccine, as I just told you can happen, wouldn't be considered as anything more than a preexisting case. The third thing they did is that before 1956, they could diagnose polio on the basis of having muscle pain and weakness. But in the future, they were no longer able to call that polio, but they were now going to call that aseptic meningitis. So what basically happened is you had zero cases of, of meningitis being reported before the polio vaccines. After the polio vaccines, we now had thousands of cases of meningitis being reported and almost hun- just basically down to like 101 year of polio or before we had thousands of cases. So they, basically so they were just calling it a
0: different name.
1: They flip-flopped the diagnosis mm-hmm. right from polio to meningitis when it was non-paralytic.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
1: that's how they got away with actually creating more paralytic polio after the vaccine, but making the statistics look
0: better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, uh, it, that gives us a little, a little bit of a, a basis here. I want to, I want to bring Ginger in on this. Uh, Ginger is, um, she's a, a family therapist um, by profession, and she has a son, and I, uh, who has autism, and I would like her to just. Tell us, Ginger, tell us your story a little bit and what, what happened with you, because I think many, many parents will relate to the things that you went through, and if they had been in the same circumstances, I think they would have experienced the same sort of thing.
2: Uh, thank you. I mean, it was, it was kind of a progression. I had um, uh, a little boy, and he was born early, and I was concerned because um, he was vulnerable. So I
0: now s- now me to- tell me in what year he was born because I think this is <clears throat> this is an important piece and and mm-hmm. Suzanne you or either one of you may want to speak to this about how vaccinations changed uh, over over time mm-hmm. especially in the eighties nineties and into the what 2000s. Mm-hmm.
2: My, well, my first son was born in two thousand, and he was born prematurely. And um, I had in the, in nineteen ninety nine there had been a story in the press about. Uh, kind of the discovery of how much mercury was in vaccines. Um, and I was concerned about it. So I asked my pediatrician about, um, you know, to, this was a year later when my son was born, and I w- wanted to make sure that he was not getting a mercury containing vaccine. And my pediatrician responded that he was very insulted that I even asked the question, of course, they did not have mercury vaccines anymore. Um, so I allowed my little boy to be injected with what I found out later was uh, a full-dose mercury vaccine and, and continued. Um. Now,
0: how did that happen when he – is is this something that was – I know I've heard stories about mercury be, uh, vaccines being left over on the shelf, and even though they said they weren't going to use them anymore, they still used up the stock, the in-house stock. Yeah, well, the problem – it's, it's
2: widely reported that mercury was taken out of vaccines in 2001. What happened was mercury mercury uh, f- lower dose mercury vaccines and mercury free vaccines began to be manufactured in two thousand and one, but there was never a recall there was so th- so everything that was out there stayed on the shelves, and parents kind of in the vaccine safety community who when they go to their pediatrician's office actually demanded to see the box before they would you know t- to check themselves we're finding um, full dose mercury vaccines on the shelves with expiration dates of latest as late as 2007 and many times the pediatrician themselves didn't know they had it they just assumed that they were now being given mercury-free vaccines and uh, you know pediatricians don't have a lot of training in in vaccination and as as we've talked about in medical school um, they kind of get press releases from the American Academy of pediatrics and Kind of trustingly go along with that um, and after my second son was born um, I continued kind of in uh, you know ignorance and th- assuming that I was you doing trust the right your thing. doctor yeah, by going yeah, along okay. with um, just the recommendations and um, after my son's 18 my, – my younger son's 18-month vaccinations, he regressed into autism. He lost speech. He lost eye contact. He stopped answering to his name, started doing some odd things. And I was in denial for a few months. And when it became – when people started bringing it to my attention, I thought, okay, it's time to really kind of face the problem. And um, he was diagnosed with autism. And I, I was told immediately um, it wasn't his vaccines. And I – you know, being – being trained at Hopkins were very much trained in the medical model and of course they would know. Of course they would have checked this. Of course this was an important issue and it's been around a while. I'm, I assume that they would have gone through this. And as I um, started treating my son and um, getting in touch with people who were um, using medical interventions like cleaning up their diet, getting rid of the toxins in their life and in their body, um, I saw my son getting better I thought, you know, this fits. I need to go back and actually check the story that my doctor's telling me. And I so I went on PubMed and started trying to pull up the research on the the actual shots my son was given just so I could convince myself that it wasn't the shots and I could move on. And I found that there of the vaccines he was given, there was not one single vaccine that was tested to se- to see if it had any relationship to autism, none of the ingredients he was he was because that that day he'd been given mercury-free vaccines according to the manufacturer. Um, there's no research on what he was given, the combination of shots that he was, that he was given. Um, there was nothing that applied to my son's case. And, and it was when I tried to discuss with my pediatrician, uh, one of them got very angry with me and just hung up the phone because, and I, and I, and I can't begin to understand they actually don't have any answers for the questions that I'm asking, um, and it, so I had to start talking about it. Um, I started a little mommy blog just to kind of share his treatment options, uh, the option, tr- options for him that had been working with other moms as we kind of share information because we were all kind of blindly you know, trying to figure out how to, how to do this, how to, how to heal our kids. And um, it became more and more obvious that you know, this was kind of – the emperor had no clothes. This was um, – the the assertion that the medical community is making that vaccines it, it have no must, relationship to autism. It must have been
0: very difficult for you to actually come to that realization. I mean, as a as a parent and with your child, that must have been very difficult. It is.
2: It's very difficult, and it's heartbreaking, and it's embarrassing because I should have known better. I had a degree. I could have read the research. I could have done that. Um, And it made me angry. So I started writing. And I started writing to um, the American Academy of Pediatrics and saying, here's my questions. What are the answers? Well, I quickly learned that they don't answer questions from parents. And and all of the answers that I assumed were there, they just don't exist. Um, And as I kind of started getting involved in activism and writing more and more about kind of what was going on in the media, we'd hear these messages in the media, and then I would go try to verify them. And again, you know, there's no – you know the 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 line that said is that vaccines are safe, and they have no relationship to autism is not a scientifically supportable statement. It is what the medical community really Mm -hmm. wants to believe.
0: Yeah, and, and, I mean, it's not just autism. I know on the document that's coming out today, uh, and you can look online, that there are many, many uh, physical diseases and ailments that are related and associated with with these vaccines. So autism is the one that we see right in our face. And, and Ginger, either you or Suzanne maybe can address um, the rate how the rate of autism has changed in our population with the change of the um, maybe one of you could give a little history of how the vaccination uh, regime has changed the number of you know vaccines that maybe a child would get in 1980 compared with you know 2000. Five so or something? How it, has that changed? It's and really, when? It's a really it good question
2: because people kind of don't have an when they hear you know you need to get your child vaccinated, they haven't a picture of their mind what the vaccine program is. It's not really necessarily accurate. um You know, we had in the you know in the forties, people got two or three shots. In the fifties, they got maybe ten shots, but it was right before they entered school, there, 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 weren't, you know, there wasn't an emphasis on infant vaccinations. In the 60s, there was a paradigm shift in medicine that kind of went with the 60s mentality of we're going to save the world, is that, that changed vaccination from we need to address an epidemic, you know, there's an epidemic of smallpox, there's an epidemic of whatever we need to deal with, to we want to wipe out disease. Um, and we want to wipe out all disease, which is not really a very practical goal. No. Right. Very lofty, but you no. know, it's not, it, it's not really practical. So what they started doing is vaccinating earlier and earlier in childhood for more diseases. Well, I was, I was born in 1969. People born, you know, late 60s to mid 80s, got about 24, 25 doses of vaccine. So um, if you were born, for example, in 1986, you would get, starting at two months, you'd have a vaccine um, for diphtheria, tetanus, um, pertussis, and polio. And then you'd have that same series at four months and that same series at six months. And there was some more after that. A child born today will get 70 doses of vaccine. It's
0: triple. It's phenomenal. It's triple. It's phenomenal I, but, The change. It, but moms here, <laughs> well, I was, you know, I,
2: I'm assuming that I'm getting the same schedule as my child. Um, but it, but a baby born today well, if they're vaccinated according to the CDC schedule, will get more vaccine doses in the first six months of life than their mother got before she went to college. Right. Um, and it's and there's no testing on this. There's no testing on you. If you look at the long list of you know vaccines that they're getting at two months. To look for the study that says, okay, giving this chemical cocktail at two months is okay and it's safe, There are there is no testing in combinations of, of what – in the real world of what they're giving. They test them one at a time. They test them they – ne- they don't test them against true placebo. So if they're testing a new vaccine, they'll – the control group will be – the old vaccine. So there's no unvaccinated, there's no zero, there's no true control. control there's no group. real control there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, the, and the, vac- the safety testing on it is really, it's really abysmal when you start asking real world questions. Um, yet the public health apart- you know, line is that these are the most, te- you know, one of the most tested product lines. But the questions that they're asking in this research, they're not applicable in the real world.
0: Well, and, and I know that uh, some of the things that have come up around that is the, the number of Number of vaccines, and I think people perhaps naively say, "Well, why would why would they all of a sudden?" I think it was maybe in the late '80s that they really poured on the vaccinations. Mm. And I, I know when I interviewed David Kirby, we um, he said in his book he totaled up the amount of mercury um, that was in these series of shots, and it was way over the uh, allowed limit. And I said, "Could it be that somebody just didn't do the math?" And, and that's what happened third grade math that's exactly I, what happened. I just can't understand that um
2: in the in our in our book vaccine epidemic, which talks about um kind of a vast uh, it really kind of fills out the the document that um Suzanne's group has put out it's kind of it fills out the, the discussion of of what they're highlighting here um My chapter is basically on kind of the public health line and how the media and government have kind of put together a, a an atmosphere where Parents don't have informed consent and vaccination. It's just not available to them. Um, and one of the uh, one of the one, uh, Johns Hopkins doctor who is very um, involved in vaccine policy had admitted, he said, we never did the math. We never just stopped and added up how much mercury these kids were getting. So a two-month-old, um, given the, the typical schedule in 1999, was getting 125 times what the EPA said was a safe limit. And the EPA standard was... Not it, it was too lax. Um, so it may have been 500 times what they could have safely processed in their it's little injected. bodies.
1: It's injected. And, and the EPA talks about environmental mercury, not injected mercury. Mm-hmm.
2: And and ingested mercury. And we know from research now that, so
0: that's worse, that yeah. it's actually worse, that Way it gets worse, trapped in yeah. the
2: brain um, and oxidizes at a mm-hmm. higher rate so it stays there, where the environmental mercury actually – the brain can process it out a little better. So um, – but what happened to kind of bring this increase on was again a political decision not a not a, a health decision um in 1986 the uh um, there was a lot of complaints from pharmaceutical companies because uh they were getting sued for vaccine damage um and death spe- most often from the DTP vaccine uh the which was in use up and through the 90s and it was causing severe brain damage and death in a lot of kids. And they were getting a lot of lawsuits. And so they threatened to leave the market. And they said, told the government, you know, this is too risky. Too risky. We're losing money on it. Yeah. So what was put into place was um, the 1986 Child uh, Vaccine Injury Act where uh, it, it produced a situation where it took these cases out of regular court. And it put it into a government. Um, it's not really a court. It's more of an administrative proceeding where the family would petition the government for Um, compensation for an injury or or a death. And were
0: there members of the pharmaceutical company that would be making these decisions or on these boards who who made those decisions? They're made by
2: specific um, special masters who are appointed, but they're not doctors and they're not judges. They're kind of political appointees. Um, and how
0: many lobbyists do we have from the drug companies oh in gosh, Washington? Gosh, there was
2: something I, I can't remember the number at this point. It's something like forty or fifty for every member of Congress. I mean, it's it's something that has contaminated the the system so much that. 40 or 50 for uh,
0: every member. We just want everybody to really hear this. 40 or 50 for every member of Congress. That's drug company lobbyists. Yes. Um, And, you know, when you have vaccine
2: injured parents, they can't go to the grocery store, much less fly to D.C. and, you know, talk to their, their congressmen. So. You know, so it's really stacked against these families. Um, and it was supposed to be a process that was quick for the families to get them, so they didn't have to drag things out in court. It should have only last a year. That their their family members would have been taken care of. But as government programs often are, it was very contaminated. Now, if you apply to the to the program, it takes ten years. You are treated very poorly by the court, um, and they pride themselves on throwing out as many cases as they can. So very few people actually get. Um, Compensated fairly, or be able, you know can get have their children or or injured family members taken care of it through the process now, but the thing that it did was it gave liability protection to the to these companies, and when you when you when you figure out that hey I've got a product line that I can't be sued for and that the government is going to sell for me so I don't have to you know they mandate it for school, you're going to pour all your research and development money into that product line, and so you know while from 1969, when I was born until 1986, we would actually dropped one. We dropped the smallpox vaccine. And so we actually had one less vaccine in that 15, 20-year period. Um, from, you know, 1988, when they started ramping this program up, we went from 24 and now we just, in November, added our 70th dose. And it's because there is no – there's nothing to stop them at this point. You know, we have a natural process in this country where – If there's damage being done by something, you could take somebody to civil court, you have discovery, you could look at their documents, everything's uncovered, and everything is um, examined. That no longer exists, and it hasn't existed for 25 years in this country. So vaccine manufacturers don't have any incentive to make a safer product. That TTP vaccine that was causing so much damage in the 70s was still being given something like 20 years later, after Japan had already taken it off the market, because they knew it was causing damage. So um, so these companies can make safer products, but they've got no incentive to do it. And at this point, there's, you know, companies and public health agencies can say, these vaccines are safe, they save lives, and there's no there's no way to hold them accountable for mm-hmm. not telling the well, truth. Well, and,
0: and it kind of brings up, we have uh, a little, two different uh, viewpoints that we're also exploring here. One is, I think... Uh, and Susan, correct me if I 'm wrong. Um, your stance that we should not have any vaccinations at all, and maybe the place you're coming from ginger is that people should be looking at uh, what these vaccines are, how they can be made safe, um, do we need them? do we really you know not need them but But I think what's behind both of what you're saying and maybe we should talk about it a little bit is the the financial incentive for the drug companies, mm-hmm. which is obviously huge.
2: It is. And they are, um, they have, it, we have evidence that their practices, you know, we all know the drug companies, they're not the most ethical companies. They get caught all the time with other drug lines causing, you know, causing damage and them trying to hide it. Um, one of the last pieces of paper, kind of documents that we got before this um, law went into place was uh, a memo that was sent out at Wyeth in 1979. In Tennessee, there had been a, um, a series of SIDS deaths, about a dozen deaths, um, all kind of close together. And they found that all of these babies had been given the same lot of uh, one of Wyeth's vaccines. And, um, it was, you know, it's what's called a hot lot. Every once in a while you get a lot of vaccine that is bad, and it killed these children. So Wyeth put out a memo, a policy memo, that – you know, didn't say, hey, let's make sure that we really keep on top of this. What their policy was after that um, happened was to break up lots of vaccines and to no longer send multiple, um, you know, shipments to one area. So if they had a lot Spread that was them bad, out. if they send one to Honolulu. Spread out the bad lots. Yeah, if they have a SIDS death in Honolulu and a SIDS death in Boston, no local public health agency is going to put that together. So the bad, so the deadly products can stay out there on the market. They don't lose money and they can't get sued. So this is the mentality. The that,
0: yeah, yeah uh, for people who might have just tuned in, this is Healthy Options. And this morning we're talking with Dr. Susan Humphreys, Uh, who is an MD, and we're also talking to Ginger Taylor. And we're talking about uh, vaccines, get the full story, and about the latest document that has just come out in the news signed by approximately 100 health professionals um, talking about vaccines and the damage that they can do to children and adults. Um, I... uh, I want to I also have each of you give contact information on where you can be contacted or websites you would recommend, because a lot of this is about um, the public's responsibility to, you know, all of, all of us need to get ourselves educated. There is a tremendous amount of information available on the internet. And one thing I will have to say I watched last night, go to YouTube and watch um, Gary Knowles' A film called um, Vaccine Nation, uh, and that that is tremendous. Um, but, uh, Suzanne, would you give us some of your contact information and things that you would recommend, and then well, let's hear from you, Ginger.
1: Yes, our contact, we have the International Medical Council on Vaccination. Our major website is vaccinationcouncil.org, but we have a main chapter, and to get to our main chapter, it's www.imcv.org. Dash me. dot o r g. We can also be found on Facebook at wwwfacebookcom slash vaccination council. me. And can I just, just one more thing? I just need to say here is that I think we make a mistake by, and I know Ginger, this is not what you meant to do, but I just want to clarify something. But by focusing on mercury, we're making a big mistake because mercury still is in childhood vaccines, even though they say it's taken out, it's still in in trace amounts, it's still in in large amounts, in four out of six of the flu Mm vaccines. But it's not just mercury that we need to be concerned about. Vaccines contain multiple chemicals, antibiotics. Some of the chemicals uh, included in vaccines are monosodium glutamate, which is a known neurotoxin. It's known to be toxic to the endocrine system. And so here we're seeing all these cases of ADHD. They've never made – so, so the vaccination people want to demand proof for our arguments and our points on vaccine dangers, but they cannot demonstrate that the, the chronic diseases that we're seeing, not just autism, but many of the chronic diseases that we're seeing in children and adults are not caused by the vaccines. They have not tested polysorbate 80 is a sterility agent. It causes sterility in animals. That is now in, in many of the teenage vaccines that we're seeing, in the meningitis vaccine and it's in the um, cervical cancer vaccine. So we're seeing all these different chemicals. Gelatin, is, a, is a, it's made from pigs and from cows. That is a known, aller, uh, it stimulates allergies. There are many components in vaccines that stimulate allergies and autoimmune diseases. This is also documented in conventional medical literature. So parents need to be aware that their children are being injected with disease matter grown on animal cells that continue to be in the vaccines, as well as toxic chemicals and neutralizing agents. Formaldehyde is one of the things that's in in, in almost all of the vaccines, is formaldehyde. Hydrocortisone, there are all kinds of buffers and and toxins that are in the vaccines. They've never studied the effect of them on long-term health. They've certainly never studied the effect of them altogether on anybody. So parents need to be aware of the paucity of information on the synergy between these chemicals and, as Ginger mentioned, on the lack of, uh, of desire on the, the part of the pharmaceutical industry to demonstrate the safety because they wouldn't be able to demonstrate the safety of these chemicals. It would, be, it
0: would not be possible. I mean, the, the basic question there, and for anyone listening to the show, is why would you want to inject your body or the bodies of your children, with these dangerous substances. I mean, why would you inject yep. a healthy body with these neurotoxins? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really make any sense. It's
1: all based on fear. Yes. Uh, and that's what happens is because in our generation, we're, we're taught to, that, that chickenpox can be fatal, that mumps can be fatal, that measles can be fatal. We're taught that the vaccines will prevent these diseases. Well, we've seen measles outbreaks in 100% in in populations that are 100% fully vaccinated. We're still seeing measles outbreaks. We're still seeing mumps outbreaks in populations that are 80% fully vaccinated. So, So we know that the vaccines don't necessarily work. We know that they can cause disease, yet the bottom line is, go get your flu shot because the flu can be fatal. Well, this 36,000 people dying per year is not true. Even the CDC came out this mm-hmm. year and said that that's not true. It's more like hun- uh, 1,000 like people per year are dying. And the question is, are they really dying of the flu? Are they dying from the treatment that they're given? Are they dying because they're malnourished? Are they dying because they also have synergistic toxins? So the fear-mongering is out of control, and it's propagated by the media. It's propagated by doctors because they, doctors actually are scared because they've been told to be scared, and every doctor has their pet vaccine. Well, I know a parent whose who doctor said to them, if you don't get any of them, at least get this Hib because this meningitis is bad. Well, sure enough, the child got the vaccine, and she became damaged from it. So one, it only takes one vaccine to cause damage, and while many children appear to be okay after they're vaccinated, there are no studies on the long-term damage, on the cancer-causing agents, on the viruses that come along for the ride. Um, so when they appear to be okay, it's only because of their incredible immune system and, de- and de- detoxification systems that are actually able to handle the toxins and the disease matter in these vaccines. But that doesn't mean because they were okay a week or two or even a month later that what happens to them next year if they get a brain tumor, if they develop asthma or cancer which, which is happening more and more in children. Children shouldn't be developing cancer. This is not just an environmental problem. When, when There are certainly problems in the environment, but now we're injecting toxins directly into the muscle where, there's, where it has no limited access to the, to the detoxification mechanisms in the liver. We have to look at that.
0: I, I think we live in a very interesting time right now, and we certainly have been subject to a lot of fear-mongering, but what I see not just in this issue but in many issues, and I think a lot of this has to do with the Internet, is that there. this seems to be a time of um, increasing transparency. We are, have a lot of information available to us, and I think for the first time in our history, um, we are really, as as everyday people, demanding information and we have access to that information and we have transparency like we've never had before. And even in this issue that I have covered now for a few years, I can see a difference. It starts sort of as a a crack in the wall and slowly more and more people are coming on board and being proactive and not going for the fear-mongering and looking for the facts and looking for the information. And I think that's very heartening for all of us. Um, It's our responsibility to really Look at the facts. Read the information. It's out there and available. And just say to yourself, does this make sense? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: And she, she touched on something I kind of want to highlight because I, I it's something kind of insidious that has happened. And, and and things have kind of turned around backwards. The purpose of a government is to serve the people. Um, you know, the, the stated purpose of a corporation is to make money, but to provide a product or a service in the process. And, you know, when... Provide you know making money or providing that service requires you to either lie to your clients or to poison people. That's out of bounds. You don't get to do that to make money. Um, but and and they're doing that. I mean, there's you know you if you kind of look at this at any point, the mercury story, the aluminum story. We haven't even talked about aluminum and and the brain damage that we're finding out, massive brain damage right. that happens in lab animals that are giving the the aluminum salts that are in vaccines um, to any myriad of combinations or, or ingredients. And it's happening, you know, kind of at every point along the way because there's not a mechanism for people to hold a government and these corporations accountable. Um, but what happened is it's gotten very turned around where um, the burden of proof has suddenly been on the people who don't want to buy this product or put it into their bodies. Um, and it's, it's wrong, you know. If, you, if I have a baby, um, my nice little fresh baby, the expectation – Needs to be okay. If you have a healthcare product for me to put into my baby, then you need to prove that that is to my satisfaction that, that is in the best interest of my this little baby, not all babies, not some babies, but this baby with his particular medical history and family history and environmental exposures and, and whatnot. And um, because that case can't be made. They've kind of turned it around where if you don't want to vaccinate, you have to prove to us that it's dangerous. Well, I'm a mom. I don't have $4 billion to go out and and do Mm -hmm. studies that they won't do with their own money. Um, Now, I I suspect that these studies have all been done and they're sitting in a drawer and they would never in the world publish them. Because if they could publish, for example, a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study where they showed that unvaccinated children had horrible health outcomes and vaccinated children were healthy, they would publish that thing and it would be on the front page of every newspaper for a year. But the fact that it's not out there tells me they probably can't do it. It can't be done.
0: So I, I think that really calls attention to all of us to stand up to um, this authority. And remember, uh, we're, we're the customers. We're the responsible ones. We do have a say. I know I went through this when I told my doctor that I wasn't going to give um, my kids the pertussis um, shot. I mean, they, they they're going to try to shame you. They're going to try to say, oh, but... Think how you'll feel if your child gets sick. And I think this is why we have these wonderful blogs like yours, Ginger, and we have wonderful people like you, um, Dr. Humphreys, who are really standing up and offering support to people. So everyone out there listening, um, there is plenty of support. There are plenty of places where you can find information and talk to people and talk to other parents who have gone through similar things. And this is just not about children. This is also about adult vaccines. It's time for us to take the power and responsibility in, into our own hands. And we have in the in our book,
2: Vaccine Epidemic, um, we go through, you know, we, we touch on the mercury issue because that's really when kind of parents in this country started waking up to, oh, wait a minute, mercury is... It, Toxic. I'm not supposed to get anywhere near it. Why are they putting it in my baby? Um, And it's kind of branched out from there. We go um, through stories of um, teenagers damaged and killed by the HPV vaccine. Um, At this point, there are 94 deaths associated with Gardasil and uh, more than 20,000 adverse
0: reactions. My, my doctor specifically told me that my daughter should never have Gardasil. And I will tell you that the the scariest 10 minutes of my life was about a year ago. This is my daughter um, who was uh, 21 at the time. Um, she had a, a, a shot that she had to have in order to go to a private college. It was mandated that she have it. She had the shot. She was sitting next to me and about uh 30 seconds later, she was out cold. She Her temperature spiked. This was in the middle of winter. In the doctor's office, they had every single window op- open. Her eyes were rolling back in her head. They were pouring ice on her. It was a terrible, frightful situation. Uh, she came out of that, and the doctor said to me, she should never take Gardasil. Well, that makes you wonder what else shouldn't she have. My daughter will never have another vaccination ever again. Mm-hmm.
2: And, it, and at least you have a doctor that admitted, yes, that was a vaccine injury. Right. I know of a, of a story where um, a father brought his son into the pediatrician. Uh, he got the shots. The child collapsed in the hallway. He ran back in with the boy in his arms. The doctor saw him from across the waiting room and yelled, it wasn't the vaccine. He, no, it, The man hadn't said anything. He just walked in with his unconscious son. The denial is so
0: deep because no doctor goes into medicine to hurt kids yeah and i mean my daughter hadn't been given Gardasil it, i wish i knew the name of the vaccine but it was one of the standard vaccines mm-hmm. that she had this reaction to yeah, but these kids are treated kind of one size fits all and um it, but again
2: not even just kids as you're saying uh we uh have st- uh, a chapter it's very powerful um from a nurse uh dover air force base who was treating uh, people who had been injured and killed by the um anthrax vaccine and the trouble that he had just getting the military and the department of defense to recognize these people are being hurt. We need to be careful with this. Um, and uh, we ended up having a letter of support from the CEO of the base at the time, a uh, very impassioned defense of this nurse who was really looking out for these soldiers. Um, and these soldiers are vulnerable because they can't say no. They don't have a choice. Right.
0: They're in the military. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, Suzanne, we don't, we don't have too much time left, but could you maybe um, address the increase in um, autism, ADHD, and various other adult um, medical diagnoses in relation to vaccines?
1: Yes, Um, I I would first like to just point out uh, for anyone who's listening that you are under no obligation for your infant to be vaccinated at birth. Uh, You can refuse that at the hospital. And you are under no obligation to have your children vaccinated to enter public school. Maine has all three exemptions. We have a philosophical exemption, a religious exemption, and a medical exemption. You're free to cho- choose whichever of those is more, more appropriate. You cannot, your child cannot be kicked out of school for not being vaccinated. It's also nobody's business to speak of in the grocery store. Your family members, it's your business. Uh, so as far as, um, so autism again, um, I have to say that I think that is just one of many problems that happens as a result of vaccination. I'm, 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 I'm very concerned about the cancer rates. I'm very concerned about the uh, kidney toxicity rates. But what I am seeing, uh, I actually just saw a case last week of what I would have to consider adult autism, and this was in a gentleman who was in the military who was highly vaccinated throughout his entire life, and every year he had been getting an influenza vaccine. So between the mercury and the aluminum that this gentleman had um, put up with, he, he's, his heavy metal burden is, is is really over the top. But it's not just about the metals. Now, when we consider that we're injecting disease matter, inflammatory mediators, we know that many of the components in vaccines increase inflammation. This is also in the conventional medical literature. That's how a vaccine works. It stimulates the immune system. It causes inflammation. Notice it hurts where you get vaccinated. You get aches and pains for a day. You can get flu-like illnesses. It's a state of inflammation that's induced by vaccination. So if you're inducing a state of inflammation, that means your blood-brain barrier can be inflamed. And in that inflammation, in that blood-brain barrier, things can get in there. So the heavy metals can get in there. The infectious particles can get in there. So autism is not just a diagnosis Mm -hmm. that has to do with heavy metals. It has to do, in my opinion, with um, breakdown of the bowel and also breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. With
0: I, I would like to have both of you back again. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. We could talk on this subject for several shows, and maybe we need to do that in the future. In the few seconds that we have left, can you just give me some very quick uh, contact inv- information again? Uh, Ginger, did you give yours?
2: Sure. Um, uh, my blog is com, and the book is Vaccine Epidemic, and you can uh, get information about it at vaccineepidemic.com. It goes on sale February 9th but you can pre-order on Amazon now.
0: Okay, and Susan, quickly, can you give us?
1: Yes, the main chapter of the International Medical Council on Vaccination is www.imcv-me.org, and we can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash vaccinationcouncil.me.
0: Thank you both very much. Um, This has been uh, Healthy Options. The name of our show today has been Vaccines, Get the Full Story. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Thank you. Thank you.